This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. This month's author guest is Janet Todd, and I'm going to start off with a little story about how I came to interview her. As regular listeners know, one of my shows every month includes listings of new or forthcoming historic novels featuring queer female characters. And one of the hardest parts of putting that list together is when books come up in my keyword searches, but the cover copy doesn't give me much of a clue as to whether and what the queer content is. So sometimes I crowdsource the question on Twitter and can usually get a confirmation one way or the other. So, when I crowdsourced that question regarding Janet Todd's new book, Don't You Know There's a War On?, the person who popped in to answer was her publicist, and we messaged a bit about the book, and she offered me a review copy, and I was just on the verge of saying, oh, well, that's a lovely offer, but I'm not sure I can fit it into my reading schedule, when I went and Googled the author and immediately wrote back with, oh my God, you mean she's that Janet Todd, the historian? Any chance she'd be willing to come on my podcast? So, now that I've thoroughly embarrassed her with my fangirling, Janet, welcome to Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. Thank you very much. I am never embarrassed by flattery. So, setting aside for the moment what I meant by that Janet Todd, let's talk about your new novel. So, Don't You Know There's a War On is something of a psychological exploration of a mother-daughter relationship that seems, well, to put it delicately, not entirely functional. The framing story is set in the 1970s, but the bulk of the novel is the memoirs of the protagonist, Joan, who seems to feel that she's been cheated of the life she felt she was promised after the war. So what led you to pick this particular setting and theme to write about? Well, it sort of came to me. I've been thinking about an incident when I was young, when I saw I was, I went past a house where the curtains were closed and I was told that a mother and daughter lived there the mother had um, was possibly a widow, one didn't know, um, and the daughter had been educated and become a doctor, which was a very odd thing. I had never heard of such a thing in my time. But she'd come back and um, had a breakdown, it was called. And from then on, there they were in the house and they, they, they didn't come out. And I was fascinated by the idea of a, a mother and daughter shut in claustrophobically because, after all, the mother-daughter tie is the elemental one, is such a big one from whichever angle you look. But the idea that they would be shut in for life into it, I'm not sure they were. I'm just, I just yeah. extrapolated from it. And I've sort of been fascinated by that ever since. And then, of course, being English, we have become obsessed about the war and a past that is no longer there. And the, the sort of sign of being intellectual and educated and properly liberal in England is that you've forgotten all that. And you've moved on to diversity and multiculturalism and so on. But it's been a huge change. And it's not clear, and I think Brexit made that unclear, whether everybody went along with these changes. And so I wanted to bring these two things together and write about an England that is still class-ridden, although the kind of person I write about from the aspirational lower middle class may 
perhaps now be almost extinct or the, the female sort. But I wanted to bring that theme um, and think about England now a little with my idea of the mother and daughter together. Uh-huh. Yeah, you use the word claustrophobic, and that was one that kept coming to me as I was reading it. And another thing that, that really struck me is that the the household of this story, as you note, is a female household. And even in the earlier part of the history that gets comes out in the book, Joan's father was a very distant figure and he died fairly young. So she, to some extent, grew up in a very female-centered household as well. And Joan and her daughter Maud have relatives, but they're cut off from them in essential ways. It's a very female-centered type of isolation. And it made me think of how... I have some female friends who are always going on about how, oh, women can be so nasty to each other in a specifically female way. But I've also known books that centered around a similarly claustrophobic household with a, a mother and adult son, for example. The Glass Menagerie uh, sort of comes to mind thinking about that. But how much of the interactions of your story do you think is a specifically female thing as opposed to the era and social situation in general? I think it's female, but it it, it um, goes in with the period because, after all, fathers in a time when mothers were definitely simply the housewives and were in the home all the time and the man was to go out, fathers were not that present. Um, and then mm-hmm. if you add the war on as well, then, then you take men out of the equation a good deal. But it does seem to me that, that at least when I was growing up, I'm I'm not... I'm not the generation of the mother, I'm much more the generation uh-huh. of, the, of the daughter. Even then, the father was very little present. Um, the kind of work they did made that impossible. And the, and the whole sort of economy of the house. And I think all this, in many ways, I think the period of the 40s and 50s were perhaps um, peculiar rather than being the later period being peculiar. In that after the war, uh, women who had done so much work outside for the war effort were pushed back into the homes and they were to be defined when men were after all somewhat few they were to be defined as wife rather than mother Mm. and so those little those households were I think dominated by a woman but a woman quite often the mother who did not see herself primarily as mother so I think it's a very specific moment I'm writing about as I'm writing about a very specific moment when motherhood was of a certain type. At the same time, I think one can, of course, generalise, and it's certainly true that any parent-child relationship can become claustrophobic uh, if the child is not allowed and encouraged to move off at a certain point. Yeah, I know that at that same era in the U.S., there was to some extent an active propaganda movement to tell women, it's like, no, no, go back to the house, go back to being housewives, you know, leave the men, jobs for the men. And there was this recognition that it, it you had to take active social control to push women back into the houses and to make it look like, you know, that was the norm. That was the normal thing you wanted to yeah. go back to. And it was a sense, too, that, that, that for women of that generation, they had to hold on to a man who gave them their identity, and without such a person, then a certain amount of their identity was diminished. You have to remember, too, that 
there was a sense of surplus women. I mean, that that was there, of course, in the <coughs> excuse me, in the nineteenth century, when yeah. there was a great worry in England, in particular, about the, the numbers of surplus women and what could we do about it. And then again, after, of course, the First World War, but two after the second. And so the idea of the, the woman alone, the, the spinster and even the widow had a certain kind of opprobrium unless she was in a rather higher class than my character. I mean, people yeah. do write about it. Muriel Spark writes about it a little and, and Anita Bruckner. But these are people slightly up, further up the social scale from, um, from Joan. Mm-hmm. So to get a bit more into the sexuality aspects of the story, which are are somewhat backgrounded, but the the daughter Maud is the character who who sort of flagged this book for my interest for the podcast. And in the opening of the story, Maud's sort of sometime girlfriend Phyllis, who is now married to a man, gets a disturbing phone call from Maud, goes to rescue her. And then the rest of the story, as we see, plays out where with Phyllis uncovering Joan's diaries. Uh, but one of the themes in the relationship between Joan and her daughter Maud is Joan's, I don't know, jealousy of the opportunities that Maud had that her mother feels she isn't properly grateful for. And there's a hint that one of the things Joan is jealous about is the opportunity to choose to love a woman. Joan's own marriage was short, unhappy, and not entirely consensual. And there's sort of a hint that she might, under other circumstances, have been more interested in women than men. So was that something you you intended to come out? Well, it's interesting you should say that, but I'm not quite sure that's what I did intend. Um, (laughs) First of all, I think that Joan and that generation generally thought of education and chances as something that allowed one to move up into another class and then to have the choices. And I think she's not so much jealous in that respect of her daughter, but disappointed that what she had and what she herself had wanted, that education, had not delivered the social cachet that she had expected. On the other hand, certainly the friend, Phyllis, is straightforwardly a lesbian and is in love with with Maud. But Maud, I think, from such a strange household, wants intimacy above everything. And is probably heterosexual as she's not had much chance to work out what she is. And Joan, Joan, I think, has had such a terrible time with sexuality that is really more sensual than sexual, sort of perhaps autoerotic, not really narcissistic, but so damaged by circumstances that what she wants or what one might think of as, as ordinary sexuality is so so repressed that I'm not sure one can say that of her. And when, when she comes to think of her pretty cousin, she mm-hmm. doesn't so much want her, though she finds her fascinating and disturbing, as wants to be her. She wants to wear her dress. She wants to inhabit her body and in a way mm-hmm. to become her and to feel sexuality through her rather than with her. So I think she's an interesting sort of character, and I hope she was interesting like that. At the same time, of course, as a child, um, she suffered the absolute ignorance that I think most English children did, unless they were from large families. I mean, the, the, the ignorance was absolutely extraordinary. And so when she had her sort of crush, as it was usually called when it was um, of a teenager, and which might well have moved into uh, lesbian feelings 
who knows, or, or, or adult ones rather, she couldn't talk of them. She didn't know what they were. She mm-hmm. didn't understand. She simply had a sort of incohate love for the other girl, a worry about her at the same time as she hated and started to dislike her own body. And so she does mm-hmm. the self-harming, which is, again, so much a feature of, of childhood. Yeah, that was something I found interesting because you have both of the central characters doing forms of self-harm. Joan cuts herself and Maud, you know, obviously has anorexia. And those are both behaviors that have come to be associated with women who feel that they have no control in their lives. And so they're trying to control something. I mean, there's there's more to it, obviously. Yes, I think that, I mean, that's true. It's But also, I'm trying to get into the mindset of the period. I mean, we are very, I don't know, we can be very proud of ourselves, can't we? We, we think we're, at last, we know everything and we're very clear in our views. And it's quite hard sometimes, I think, to go back and say, well, they thought something different. Yes. We think it's poor. We think it's inappropriate. We think it's it's very self-harming for them. But that is what they did think. And we can be there can be an awful complacency from the present looking at the past. So I did mm-hmm. want to try to find out, you know, or to go back to an era which in which girls were kept in quite extraordinary ignorance. I mean, even when I, this is not autobiographical, I hasten to say quickly. Um, <laughs> Thank I went, goodness. I went to a boarding school and I had no idea that, um, and a lot of us were only children and had come from, from homes where these things were not discussed, um, though my parents were perfectly loving. Um, there was huge worry over any girls becoming friendly at all. In dormitories, if there was any kind of friendship, we were immediately moved into another dormitory. We were not allowed to sit next to the same girl at lunch or dinner. Um, And somebody was keeping eagle eyes over all of us. We would give numbers so that numbers would change and we would move around all the time. Now, none of us had the slightest idea, at least none of my friends or I did, had the slightest idea why this was being done. But now when I, I... got hold of a friend from there. I, I, I left England very quickly, so I didn't keep up with a lot, but I recently made contact with a, with one of these uh, friends from then, and she said, yes, it's fairly clear that the headmistress was a lesbian and was worried about it <laughs> and <laughs> was concerned that people should never think it, um, whereas most, I imagine, of the parents of the farmers and whatnot around who sent their girls to this place would actually not have worried at all. Uh-huh. I want to to talk about one of the prose aspects of of your writing in this book, because you've depicted Joan as, I don't want to say, you know, not particularly well-educated, because she certainly had aspirations to be well-educated, aspirations that were thwarted. Uh, But she comes across as having later absorbed a fairly anti-intellectual take on life. But the prose of her journal within the story it's colorful, it's poetic, it's full of metaphors and allusions, and it doesn't it doesn't feel like the words of the woman that she is depicted as being. Do you think not? I thought it was in that. I I think that that period in which people were autodidacts precisely did have a disjunction between the way they could write, because they were reading all the time. They read and they read as she did. 
and they swallowed the golden treasury. <laughs> they learned <laughs> poems by heart. They they knew reams of stuff um, just like that. But that didn't mean that they knew the appropriate cliches and quick remarks if they entered a class above them. And I do want to keep stressing this business of the lower middle class, which is mm -hmm. where she comes from. A child of parents who are not educated, uh, who can sort of carry it off in, in reasonable circles, but who know that they don't speak in quite the right accent. And the accent is so important in English mm -hmm. circles and still is awfully so. And who don't know how to pronounce the words that they can write. So I don't uh -huh. think it's unreasonable. She did read and read, and you can get an awful lot out of the golden treasury if you swallow that pretty hole. Oh, okay. So th that answers the question I had about how you had intended it to come across. I just wanted it to be, I hope that people would find, I mean, she's awful. She is this, in some ways a nightmare of the kind of person, an amalgam of people that I must have known as a child, because I was out of England for, for 20 years from the 1960s to 80s. And I kept coming back and seeing the changes and seeing the way people had to move culturally. But, but that sort of person was still there. At the same time, I wanted her not to be sympathetic, but to mm. be, I hoped, understandable. So that you didn't, I don't want people to say, well, you know, what, you don't know what it's like until you walk in her shoes. I want someone perhaps to understand why she goes on wearing shoes that so pinch her. You know, what <laughs> is it that keeps her in this position? Because after all, I mean, it's her temperament, which is already formed quite early, as well as circumstance that keep her in this sort of prison house that she's made. But she's also somehow chosen it. And there's a kind of, I want to suggest, a kind of pride in being the outsider, in being the person <laughs> who says no, the straggler, the, the refusenik, as it were, the person who will not <laughs> go where the government is telling you where to go, will not change when you're told to change not get rid of the opinions that are now called prejudices and so on. So I wanted to catch a sense of vigour and almost vitality of such an awful person, I suppose. <laughs> so your academic research has been uh, in earlier eras. You're a historian. You've worked on women writers of the 17th through 19th centuries. And you have written some previous novels that fall more in those eras that aligned with your academic study. I'm curious about why you chose to write this novel in a more modern setting, or whether that was just, you said you were inspired by a particular house and uh, the inhabitants. Why, why a modern story? Well, it isn't completely modern, of course. So I, I wanted to go back to think about the England that I missed in some ways, those, those, those 20 years out, because it is a strange place. And it's had to come mm -hmm. to terms with so many changes in its position in the world. And I wanted to think about that. Um, the periods in which I was basically researching the 17th and 18th century, England's on its way up. There's an ebullience and a, um, a hopefulness um, that the empire is growing and, and it's considered to be a good thing at the time. It's exciting and it's adventurous. And I wanted to sort of pull away from that optimistic, rather outgoing period and concentrate on this strange post-war one, which is the mm -hmm. world that is 
made me, I suppose. As I said, it's not it's not my generation, but it's it's a world that I, I remember. I mean, I didn't didn't have to do a lot of research for this because uh-huh. the memories of, of rationing are, are mine. And mm-hmm. the memories of the the huge changes uh, in class that came over people when they came back from the war, that I remember very well. I do have, have one peculiar memory too about rationing or about about the value of food and, and how important it was. And that was because when um, we were in a rather poor rationing situation, when my parents and I left uh, to go to Bermuda, where my father was, was posted in at the end of the 40s, and um, we stopped off in America where we had actually no money, but we had a hotel. So we had this mm-hmm. weird situation where for the first time I'd seen real food, lots uh-huh. of it in the shops, and we couldn't get it and I remember standing outside these shops um, and talking about it and my mother trying to explain you know what the chocolate would taste like and so on it was it was a very very strange thing and so I've always wanted to write a bit about rationing and the making do um, again of that generation and then the 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 sort of and it's a female making do the men are going out drinking and, and working yeah. in the way they usually do. It's women who have to keep on and who make a virtue of austerity and mm-hmm. and and the sort of dinginess of the time. So to that extent, I think it's, it's a female world. Um, mm-hmm. And it is, women did come together in a way probably then, um, in a way that could be heartening. It's just that I have chosen to write about somebody who couldn't, who couldn't take advantage of that. Yeah, and... And I think it's important to have the stories that that aren't the happy endings, the ones that talk about the the normalness of awfulness sometimes. Yes, I I wonder too. I mean, I I think that that um, I mean, I mean I've been to, as you've been talking and and we've been discussing a bit about lesbian relations. I mean, I knew absolutely nothing about such things all the way up until till probably very late teens. It really was not known. As we didn't know the sexual feelings that were coming to us, I think so. It was it's a very strange thing. So choices, I don't know what quite what choices are in a way of, of, of sexuality and so on. But it's um it's also I think partly the repression is to do with the kind of weird motherhood of the period. Um, I don't know if you if, if this was in America too, but there was a a way of bringing up children after the war that was dominated by um, a man called Truby King. You come across it doesn't um, ring a bell well the, 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 well the idea was that a child should be brought up with total uh, totally controlled and that ah, yeah. the, um, feeding should there was be a... only at a, that should child should not be picked up should not be hugged should not be rocked should not in any way be fondled in the way that would make them into self-indulgent grown-ups who would be yes there, that that was a thing that was one strain of American child rearing, um, and then and then we had uh, Doctor Benjamin Spock came in and wrote oh, well, his book. Was, yeah, by the time I got children, it was, it was <laughs> Spock, and and it was all change, pick them up yeah. all the time, and so on. So, so so you've got again a whole lot of people who would have been the result of this kind of weird upbringing, mm-hmm. and who would have had a very a sort of strange relationship. To the mother and to the mother's body. I, I don't know what damage it does. I haven't read about it, and I haven't sort of thought about it in any 
exaggerate you know, any proper psychological way. Mm-hmm. But surely it must have had some of the effect that the wet nursing and putting children out had to do in the earlier periods. So I understand that you've recently retired. You were uh, you had a long and very distinguished career in academia. You've had positions at Glasgow University and Aberdeen University. You put in time as the president of Lucy Cavendish College at Cambridge. But now, as I understand it, you've retired and you're focusing a lot more on fiction. Are there any other uh, novels that either are already out there or future projects you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? I've always wanted to be a, a, a fiction writer, and um, I sort of fell into academics when I went to the States and couldn't get any other job, I have to say. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed it, and I, I think it's been a, a pleasant way of making a living. I, the idea of being paid to read books is, is very splendid. But I would like to have been a novelist from the start, and so I tinkered with them and wrote a few and put them on, in the drawer and thought about it. And only now I've really got going, but I did publish a, a, a spin-off of Jane Austen. Um, it was a sort of rewrite of, of Lady Susan Plays the Game. Well, mine, mine was called Lady Susan Plays the Game. Um, Jane Austen's obviously was not. I wouldn't take on one of the great novels. I would feel really too inhibited, and now perhaps I wouldn't even do that. But at the time, I really enjoyed it. I absolutely adored Jane Austen, and it's it was such fun playing around with her. But my first published uh, original novel was set in Venice, which I've worked in from time to time over the last years, and which I therefore knew well. And it was a sort of gothic novel, because I do love gothic, <laughs> um, dark novels, as you as you possibly gathered from the, the later one. And so I, and it was also allowed me to use the knowledge that I gained from writing endless footnotes for the... Um, <sighs> editions of Jane Austen and Mary Wollstonecraft and Charlotte Smith and the women around the period. And I do love the Regency period, but not the Regency period so much of the sort of bonnets and polices, but it's the one that was, <laughs> was rather cruel and dark and in many ways uh, very unpleasant to the different classes. Uh-huh. But now, now I thought I'd like a few readers for this one. <laughs> and if I can get any encouragement, I've already started another one, which I want to write. I, I I did a, a sort of, um, it was a, a memoir, really, though it was within a cancer diary. Um, I had uh, radiotherapy, and I wrote a diary of what I felt each day. And I found that it was primarily made up with literary uh, quotations and thoughts. And it was my life uh, which came through it, but the bits of my life that came to me. I hadn't written it for publication, um, but was persuaded very kindly. Uh, later to publish it. But at the end of it, I I have thought a lot of people like me who did have quite lonely childhoods um, and who lived in books um, and for whom books were as, and and writing and and poetry were as really as as real as anything else. In fact, more vivid often than real life. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted wanted to explore that, but in a, a group of people this time, I think I've I've probably done with the the women alone. <laughs> I know about women alone, so I'm I'm sort of keen on it. But I would like now to think about women together, women who are attracted to each other in all sorts of different ways, um, erotically to some extent, but also just psychologically, intellectually, and are attracted often through works of literature, through poetry, through 
the sharing they have of quotations and thoughts from other writers in their heads. So the past and present are sort of fused together. Well, that sounds like something I would love to read. So I hope you do write it. Thank you. So if my listeners were interested in learning more about your work or even following you on social media, where could they find you online? Well, my books are on Amazon and various other places. That would be nice if you would like to buy it. But I, I do occasionally do Twitter and it's at Jan underscore Todd. And I also do have a Facebook page. I have to say mainly in the last weeks, it's been with pretty flowers from we're all locked down, as I imagine you are too. So we get out occasionally and take pictures of flowers to keep ourselves going. So those are possibilities. And I would love to hear from other people who are interested in the same topics as I am. I think you have a website as well. I do, yes. JanetTodd.co.uk. I will include links to all of those in the show notes for people to follow up. And may I say, it has been an honor to have you on the show, Janet Todd. Well, the honor is all mine. And thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider supporting our Patreon 